0: Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We're gonna get into the word. Let's do it. Slap somebody next to you, tell them get ready. It's the 11 o'clock service. Wheels off. We're gonna get crazy. Is my voice sad? My voice sounds weird? Well, you look beautiful, so whatever. Is that better? Okay. Here you go. Let's try that again. Let's get into the Word. All right. We are in week four of a series uh, that we started for the summer Called the answer where we are looking at the book of first corinthians and uh, if you're joining us for the first time or if you've been out for the last couple of weeks let me do as i've done every other week catch up to speed build a bit of a foundation i apologize if this is review for some but uh, i want to make sure that we're all on the same page as we step into today's subject matter and i want to explain why we're calling this series the answer uh, the books of First and Second Corinthians are letters from the Apostle Paul in response to some issues that have arisen in this young church in Corinth in the year a d Forty-nine, the Apostle Paul plants this church in an unlikely city called Corinth. And I say unlikely because uh, it was definitely well known around the Roman Empire for its wickedness and its perversion. Uh, if you did a brief study of cultural history in, in ancient Corinth, you'd find that it was the city that people traveled to if they wanted to indulge in the flesh or experiment with their sexuality or engage in all the sin that the world had to offer. And it would not be uncommon for a visitor to walk the streets of Corinth and see public nudity or uh, sex with prostitutes or public sex acts and drug use, all as various forms of worship for the pagan gods who's uh, temples lined and littered the city. Uh, it was obviously not a, a space known for its high moral c- uh, character or its Christian values. Uh, I wanted to revisit once again a, a quote from a theologian that we shared in the first week, but he says this about the culture in Corinth. He says, the term Corinthia zoma was well known in the Roman Empire, and it meant literally to live like a Corinthian, but everyone really knew it meant to be sexually out of control. Aelian, the late Greek writer, tells us that if ever a Corinthian was shown upon the stage in a Greek play, he was shown drunk. So to put it simply, Corinth was a place that you could be whatever you wanted to be, do whatever you wanted to do, indulge in whatever you wanted to indulge in, and not only be tolerated by the culture, but be celebrated by the culture as a result. And as we reminded ourselves of every single week, that sure does sound a lot like our city here in San Francisco, especially this weekend in the light of all of the events that are taking place around our city. But as it is for us, so it was for them. The Apostle Paul believed that the light of the gospel works best in the darkest of places, and so he believed Corinth could be a very strategic location where God would export the gospel from that place. So he plants the church, and hundreds of people begin to get saved. People that were unlikely, people that you never think would come to Christ, begin to get saved one by one, dozens by dozens, hundreds by hundreds. And finally, after about a year and a half, the Apostle Paul says, all right, church has grown enough, it's stable enough for me to leave and go about my missionary endeavors in Syria. And he entrusts the church to Apollos and other leaders. But after he leaves, he begins to get these letters, some frantic letters from these young believers who begin to share with him about a number of problems that have arisen in the church. Apparently, they love God, but they're finding it far more difficult than they anticipated to live for Jesus in this wicked culture. And many of them are bringing the Corinthian practices into the Christian church. And so one by one, the Apostle Paul, throughout his letters here, begins to address these issues that have been brought to his attention. And with every single problem, he responds by showing them how the gospel of Jesus Christ provides an answer to the problem that they're facing. Hence the name of the series, The Answer. And since our city is a lot like their city, and since our problems are a lot like their problems, then it stands to reason our solution will be the same as their solution. If the gospel can tell people in a wicked city how to live for Jesus a couple thousand years ago, come on, it can still tell us today how to live for Jesus in a city like San Francisco. And I, it's funny, I was, I was sharing that last week, uh, that same recap, and uh, someone sent me a couple of memes after the service about the Apostle Paul, and I, I didn't know where to work it into the sermon, so I'm going to interrupt the sermon for a couple of memes. You guys okay with that? But he sent, he sent these to me as, after he heard that. Uh, if Paul could see the church in America today, we'd be getting a letter. <laughs> I love that. And then he sent a picture of what that letter might look like. Uh, One, Americans one, one through two. Paul, an apostle of Christ by his glorious grace. Greetings. What the heck, guys? (laughs) A solid introduction. Thank you for encouraging us with those memes. Okay. So each week, here's what we're doing we are taking the problem that's present in one of the chapters of the book. We are contextualizing it to our modern day, and we're looking at how the gospel can resolve that problem. We've talked about the problem of idolizing human knowledge above godly wisdom. We've talked about the problem of walking in the flesh instead of walking in the spirit. Last week, we talked about the problem of what Paul called carnal Christianity, and we looked at how we cannot uh, be aligned divisively, denominationally, trying to find factions in the body of Christ, and how we all need to keep our minds on eternity because an eternal judgment is coming. And today, we are looking at the fourth problem that Paul tells us is present in this church. It is the problem of poor stewardship, poor stewardship. Uh, Here's what he writes in the second verse of chapter four. Now, a person who is put in charge as a steward must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. There's a terrifying thought right there. Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. And then I love this question for what do you have that God has not given you? That's a great question. What do you have that God has not given you? And the obvious answer is nothing. Everything I have has come from God. And so in light of that truth today, I want to title our conversation this morning in this manner. What's mine is yours. Can you say that with me? What's mine is yours. You're already doing the hand motions like we're in kids church. So let's go ahead and do it again. All right. What's mine is yours. feels a little bit like a cult. That's cool. All right. All right let's pray. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the timeless truths that are represented in the scriptures. And Lord, we ask, according to Psalm 119, that the entrance of your word would bring light to our lives today. If there are areas where we are poor stewards, we give you permission to address it, to convict us, and to bring us to a place of change before we leave today. In the great name of Jesus and the Father's house, said, amen. Amen. Uh, If you have been a part of our church for even the last couple of months, there's a good chance you have heard us speak about this subject of stewardship. It's a subject that we talk about quite frequently around here, and the reason we talk about it so often is because Scripture talks about it quite a bit, which should tell us something. Anytime the Scriptures speak frequently about a subject, it's usually because we need to be reminded of that subject time and time again. I have often operated under the assumption that those things which show up most frequently in scripture are the things that we need to hear about the most. For example, the the scriptures speak quite often about the love of God and us loving others as we were just singing about a moment ago. Well, the reason the scripture talks so frequently about loving other people is because sometimes it's hard to love other people. It's difficult to operate with the love of Christ towards many people in our society, sometimes even in our own home. Can I get a witness? Okay, yeah. We need to be reminded. There's a reason that the scriptures tell us time and time again to not be afraid. In fact, 365 times there is a command do not be afraid. Why? Well, because of what Francis shared a moment ago. We need to be reminded that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind so we can think clearly about what we see. There's a reason that the scriptures tell us over and over and over again to live by faith and not by what we see. There is a persuasion, a temptation, to believe that what we see is what we get. But scripture tells us the exact opposite, because faith has nothing to do with what we see. Hebrews 11 says that faith is the substance of things unseen. It is being confident of things that we hope for. We need to be more convinced of what we see with our eyes closed in prayer than what we see with our eyes open in the natural. And on and on these subjects go. Scripture reminds us time and time again of the things which our culture, our our world, and even our flesh try to talk us out of over and over again. But such is the sake with stewardship. There is a reason that Scripture talks so frequently about this subject. And it is because there is a, a pressure, a temptation, especially in our Bay Area culture, to buy into the gospel of ownership instead of the gospel of stewardship to believe that we possess everything instead of stewarding everything that has been entrusted to us. It is probably no surprise that we live in a culture that is rugged, individualistic, a culture whose, whose favorite, favorite pronoun is the possessive one, the word mine, mine, mine. We love that word it's my life. It's my destiny. I'm going to chart my own course. It's my truth. It's my body. It's my money. It's my choice. Mine, 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 me, me, me. We're just toddlers in bigger bodies sometimes in our, in our nation. That, that is the, the modus operandi. That is the the mindset of our culture. We think we own everything. And to a degree, this ownership mindset can be healthy. For example, if you, if you are an employer here today, you want your employees to think like owners in your business. You, you, you want them to treat company resources and company time like an owner because an owner thinks differently about those things. They're not, uh, they don't spend money frivolously and, and they manage company time wisely and they treat customers differently. They're not quick to argue with a customer or, or to spit in their food because they're aware of things like Yelp and reviews and reputation and they want the longevity of the business to be blessed. So they think differently. If you're a parent here today, you want your kids to think about your home and your possessions as if they are owners, not just temporary tenants for 18 years while they abuse your house, abuse your stuff, and then move out. Can I get a witness? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so this ownership mindset can be healthy in some ways, but it becomes problematic when we begin to apply the ownership mindset to faith. When we begin to take possession of things which we have only been lent for a short period of time called life to be stewarded for the purposes of God. This ownership mindset becomes a problem when you begin to say things like, well, it's my gift to use how I wanna use it. It's my ministry. It's my preferences in worship that matter most. And so I'm gonna to go to the church that I like and that I want and that they, they do the things that I want them to do. It's, it's my money. It's, it's mine, 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 me, me, me. Well, the problem with that is it's not what scripture teaches. According to the word, none of it belongs to us. The earth is the Lord's and everything therein, everything on this planet, including your life and your resources and your gifting belong to him. And he's entrusted them to you to be stewarded for his purposes. It is not my gift, it's his. So he tells me how to use it. It's not my resources, there is. So he tells me how to invest them. It's not my life, it's not my future, it's not my plans that matter most. No, he gave me breath in my lungs. He created me in my mother's womb and this life belongs to him. It is an act of worship for me to say everything that I am laid at the foot of the cross to be used for the expansion of the kingdom. We've been called to steward. So... What does that word mean? Well, this word steward in the Greek, it is the word oikonomos, and it means the manager of a household. The manager of a household. Now, as Paul used this word in the letter, it would have been been obvious to his hearers or to his audience what it meant, because a household manager was not uncommon in their culture. However, I think that this idea gets a little bit lost on us. I don't mean to sound rude or to make assumptions, but based on the general demographic in the room, I would assume that not a lot of us are balling hard enough to have household managers. There might be a few people in the room who live in St. Francis, and you got an au pair, and you may have a a butler, and if if that's you, please, I want to be your friend. Maybe you can cut a million-dollar check to the church. Uh, Just kidding. (laughs) But the rest of us barely have enough bedrooms and bathrooms to accommodate our household people, much less a manager, and obviously not a, an estate large enough to warrant one. So, allow me to modernize this definition just a little bit, if I could, to help us understand what Paul is saying. Uh, let's pretend that um, Robin and I are going to go on a vacation. Uh, where do you want to go? Four Bora Bora. The Four Seasons in Bora Bora. <laughs> first service it was way cheaper man I got to start saving that's a it's gonna be a difficult um okay so we're gonna go to the four seasons in Bora Bora and you're all gonna judge us because pastors shouldn't be doing that and while we're gone I uh find I'll say Smarty all right say Smarty will you watch after my house for me there's my keys I want you to, to take take care of my home Uh, Here's all I need you to do. I need you to water the plants, make sure they don't die, Uh, take out the trash, put out the bins on on Thursday, make sure that the the trash guys come and pick it up. And uh, because I want you to be blessed as you're watching my estate for me, um, (laughs) while I'm in Bora Bora apparently, (laughs) Uh, I'm going to stock the fridge. I'm going to give you plenty of food. I'm going to leave a bunch of DoorDash gift cards all over the counters there so you can get some some, some order out. And uh, because I want to bless you, I'm going to give you $100 a day just for looking after my property while I'm gone. This is a fictional story, just for the record, okay? So this is not a real thing that's happening. So Robin and I, we go away. We enjoy Bora Bora. (laughs) And two weeks later, we come home, get in the Uber, go back to the house, But as we pull up to the front of our property, we notice that all the plants are dead. All the trash cans are overflowing with trash. But in addition to this, Smart has had the audacity to hire some painters to come and change the exterior color of my home while we were away. So we're obviously a little triggered at this point. We get out of the car, we start huffing and puffing with our luggage up the stairs. But as I insert the key into the lock, My agitation only increases because I discover that he has changed the locks on my property. So I ring the doorbell, which has been replaced with one of those ring doorbells so that he can see his packages come. And Smarty opens the door and he's like, hey guys, welcome back. How do you like what I've done with the place? And just as I'm about to light into him for all that he's done on the outside of the home, I realize that we have only scratched the surface. Because all of my furniture is gone. It's been replaced with all of his furniture. My family's pictures have been taken off the wall, and now him and his family are all over the walls in my house. The bathroom's been remodeled, the floors have been changed, and he's even poured new concrete in the backyard where he and his kid have put their handprints, where my daughter's handprints were, just as a sign of dominance to show me who he really is. It's still my house, I'm still paying the mortgage, it's still my name on the deed. But this joker took what I had entrusted to him for a short period of time and began to treat it as if he owned it. He took what I asked him to manage, and he began to make it his own. And suddenly we are beginning to get a picture of what Paul is speaking about here in this text. He's saying, this is the problem, guys. You've been treating stuff like you own it. You've been treating your life and your resources and your gifting and your opportunities as if they belong to you, but I'm here to remind you, you are owners of nothing. You are stewards of everything, and God has given it to you. He's entrusted it to you for a short period of time called life to be used for his purposes. He, he says, don't you see that, that you've been entrusted with some of the greatest things that God has to offer and all he's asking is that you would use it for his kingdom and not your own. They're not yours, they're his. Because, remember, he says, there will be a day where you stand before Jesus and you give an account for the way that you handled those things which he, stewarded, he gave to you to steward. As we discussed last weekend, there will be a day where you stand at that second throne and the books of your life are opened And he begins to ask you, how did you handle those resources? How did you handle that gifting? How did you handle those opportunities? Did you manage them for my sake or did you build them for your own? And in that moment, it will be determined whether or not we stewarded well that which God has entrusted to us. And the metric that God will use in that moment to determine whether or not we are judged favorably for eternity or not, is summed up in a single word, a single word the Apostle Paul uses here, faithful. Faithful, look at what he says in in verse two, once again. Now a person who is put in charge as a steward must be faithful. They must be faithful. Faithful is the standard. Not good intentions, not production, not preservation, Not not perception, only one word. Were you faithful with what God gave you? Every moment, every day, every breath, every gift, were you faithful with what he entrusted to you? Jesus, one day in, in Matthew chapter 25, he begins to speak about this word faithful. And he tells a parable, a fictional story that displays a spiritual truth. And he says, this is what the kingdom of heaven can be likened to. There was a man with three servants, and to each of those servants, he gave a certain amount of money that he said, manage well while I'm away, and then the master went away on a long journey, and the story goes on to say that the two, two of the three servants invested wisely what the master had given to them. They were able to double the resources before the master returned, but the third guy took what was given to him, and he buried it in the backyard, and so when the master returns, and he calls all of his servants to give an account for that which they had been entrusted, each of them begins to present what they have. To the first two who doubled what was given to them, it says that the master looked back at them and he said, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy that has been set before you. It's where we get that phrase. But to the third guy who buried what was entrusted to him in the backyard, Jesus says, the master looks at that guy and he says, you wicked and lazy servant. You could have at least put my money in the bank, then I would have gotten something for it. But instead, you gave what I entrusted to you, and you buried it in the backyard. Take from this guy what I entrusted to him, give it to those who were faithful, and cast him out into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but that is not a conversation I want to have with Jesus for eternity. I do not want to stand before Jesus and be accused of being wicked and lazy because I did not recognize that everything I have belongs to him and not to me. I don't wanna see the real of my life, of what could have been if I had recognized all that I have is yours and I leveraged it for the kingdom No, as for me, and I would assume for most of us in the room, I am holding out for that coveted phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy that has been set before you. You stewarded well what I gave to you. But if that is what we want, which I believe it is, then we need to ask ourselves a question. We have arrived at that uncomfortable moment in the sermon where I posed the question, forcing you to personalize everything we've discussed, lest we think it applies to someone else and not our own lives. So let me ask the question of the day. If the guy was wicked and lazy because he buried, let me ask you have you buried anything lately? As you survey the landscape, the backyard of your life, do you have any buried gifts, buried opportunities? Buried calendars and schedules. Buried treasure back there. Anything you've said, God, this is off limits. This is mine. I'm not giving this one to you. And, and remember, burial is not limited to the things that which we neglect. It's not just about what we don't use at all. It's also about the things that we use for our kingdom instead of for His kingdom. Have you buried anything lately? And I would caution you not to answer that question too quickly. I would caution you not to use the excuses that you've given as to why you're not going to do this for God or not going to do it in this season or why you're taking an extended rest or all the things we use to explain away stewardship in our lives. I'm sorry if this is heavy, but this is the word. I would caution you not even to let other people affirm your decisions about stewardship and ex- assume that because they approve of it, God approves of it. Because what, what does Paul say in this text? He says, I do not trust the opinions of people in this matter when it comes to stewardship. I don't even trust my own opinion in the matter because it's not me or other people that are gonna judge me for eternity. It is the Lord himself who I will stand before and he's not gonna just judge stewardship, he's gonna judge my motive for the way that I did things. You might be able to get away with it here on earth, but your motive will be revealed before God. So again, in full transparency before Jesus, have you buried anything lately? And as we sit and wrestle with that question, might I suggest adding yet another consideration to the stewardship conversation? One that may not come to the surface right away, but one that the Apostle Paul suggests here is absolutely paramount in this conversation, and that is the stewardship of suffering. I know that's not something we often think about as being entrusted to us, but according to this text, even suffering is something that is entrusted to us to be stewarded well. Look at what Paul says as he continues to use himself and Apollos as the examples on now into verse 11. He says, even now we go hungry and thirsty And we don't have enough clothing to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn a living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash right up to the present moment. I am not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you only have one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ when I preached the good news to you. So I urge you to imitate me. Many theologians have, have written this section of scripture off as sarcasm from the Apostle Paul. But when I read it, I don't just see sarcasm. I feel like I see his heart in this. You can almost picture the apostle writing through tears as he says, I don't, I don't tell you these things to shame you. I tell you these things to warn you as a father would warn the children whom he loves. And what is the warning? That this life of faith is not going to be easy. You will endure some suffering." I'm not here to be a prophet of bad news, but it just is par for the course. The life of faith is not an easy life. If somebody told you coming to Jesus was signing up for a life of blessing where you never have financial problems and you never have sickness and you float on a rainbow for the rest of your life, they lied to you, friend. That is not how this thing works. You came to Jesus and painted a target on your life for the enemy to begin to attack because now you are leveraging your life for the cause of the kingdom instead of for yourself here on planet Earth. There is a reason that Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, if anyone wants to be my follower, they must lose their life, take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. True following Jesus is a willful statement, I do not care about the comforts of this life any longer. I'm casting aside comfort, and I will embrace suffering if necessary, because it is worth it to get to Jesus. Yeah, I know it's not an exciting thing to applaud, but it's the truth. And, And the apostle Paul says, if you don't believe me, look at my own life as proof of this. I've been mistreated, I've been rejected, I've been beaten, I've been isolated, I've gone without food, I've gone without house, I have experienced and tasted the worst of what this world has to offer. And if it happened for me, it's probably gonna happen for you. Suffering is not evidence of God's neglect. It's not evidence of his abandonment. Suffering is just part of the journey. God would have never called himself the comforter if there were not some seasons where you were gonna need comfort. He would have never called himself the provider if there weren't going to be seasons where you needed provision. He would have never called himself the strong tower that you could run to in times of need if you weren't gonna feel like collapsing from time to time. He would have never called himself a father if there weren't fatherless. No, every name, every name represents a season of suffering that you can run to him for. But when suffering comes, Paul would remind us that it is not a season to escape. It's not to run away and blame God for everything that's happening in your life. No, when suffering comes, it is a season to be stewarded well. Can you suffer well? As I was thinking about this part of the sermon, I, I, I couldn't help but go back to a recent season even in our own lives. Uh, Many of you know the story of our oldest daughter, Ellie's miraculous healing back in February uh, where she was healed from a blood condition that every medical professional said was impossible, and yet she became the only candidate in medical history to be healed miraculously from this thing. And it's it's a powerful story. if you don't know the details on that one, I ain't got time to share it today. You can go back to our Easter service and uh, I gave all the details in the timeline there. You can, you can watch it online. But obviously before she was healed, we had an 18 month process where we walked through our season of suffering. And I was brought back to a moment as I was studying this last week when I was on the Bay Bridge. At the time, Robin and I were trading places at the hospital, sleeping there because COVID rules were that no, two parents couldn't stay. And so we were relieving one another And uh, there was a day where I was driving out on the Bay Bridge to the ICU in Oakland. And as I was driving, I was praying that Ellie would be healed, as I had many times before. But in the middle of this prayer, the Holy Spirit dropped a phrase in my heart that I did not realize was going to be a guiding force for the next 18 months. Right then and there, the Holy Spirit just, just whispered this to me. Tim, you only get one shot to do this season right. You get one chance to do this. I can neither confirm nor deny that Eminem was playing in the background as the Holy Spirit spoke that to me. (laughs) Only get one shot, do not miss a chance to blow because opportunity comes Yeah, One chance, one shot. And and I remember in the car thinking to myself in that moment, all right, God, if if we have to go through this chapter of suffering, we're going to do it well. We're going to navigate this season right. What I did not realize is, I would think of that moment many times over the next 18 months. In moments when the doctors told us it was impossible or they were giving her a new cocktail of medications or another endoscopy, another set of bad news, over and over and over again, I had an opportunity to say, no, we're going to do this well. I'm not going to run to coping mechanisms. I'm not going to try to medicate the pain away. I'm not going to drink the pain away. I'm not going to, run away from God or blame God for for what I'm experiencing. No, I'm gonna keep my eyes fixed on Jesus and we're gonna do this chapter of suffering well. And sure, did we make some, some mistakes in the process? Absolutely, I'm sure we did. But I believe that when Robin and I are standing before Jesus in eternity, and the book, the chapter is opened up to that part of our lives, I am confident that Jesus will look us in the eyes and he will say, well done, good and faithful servants. You suffered through that season well. But, but here's what I know. Though that chapter is over, I know that another one will come. My suffering on this side, eternity, is not over. I don't invite it. I just recognize it's part of the journey. And I also know that as we sit in this room this morning, there are a number of people walking through your own season of suffering today. There are people in this room Who've received terminal diagnosis? A guy who is sitting in the first service right over here, whose wife is on death's doorstep right now. I know that there are people whose marriages are hanging on by a thread in the room today. There are people sitting here this morning who I can lock eyes with right now who raise their kids in church taught them all about the word of God, raised them in the presence, but today they are farther from Jesus than they've ever been. They've turned their backs on God and they've denied the truth of the scriptures. And those parents are terrified, what's gonna happen to my kid for eternity? Others in the room who've suffered loss, a lady who was sitting in the third row who just lost her husband recently, financial loss, physical loss, on and on it goes. There are people here in the room this morning who are walking through hell on earth. And I do not say this to minimize your pain or to glaze over your suffering. But if I could look you in the eyes today, I would tell you what the Holy Spirit told me. You get one shot to do this chapter right. You get one chance to suffer well through this season. Don't cope, don't run, don't medicate, don't blame God, don't get angry at God. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and suffer well through this chapter. In fact, I believe if the Apostle Paul was the guy standing on stage today preaching this message to you, he would tell you what he told the Corinthians in this chapter. Look at my life. Look at the suffering I've endured. Look at how I've responded and then imitate me, he says. Follow me as I follow Christ. Which begs the question, well, Paul, if I'm supposed to follow your example, how did you suffer well? And I think if he was standing here today, his answer would be this, if you're gonna suffer well, you need to fix your eyes on eternity. I know that this might sound a bit redundant in light of what we talked about last week, But I am convinced more and more as I'm reading through these scriptures for this series that the New Testament apostles spent way more time than we are currently spending talking about eternity. And we need to fix our eyes on eternity a little bit more frequently than we're doing right now. So let me say it again. If we're going to suffer well, we need to fix our eyes on eternity. Look at what Paul says now in this second letter to the Corinthians as we prepare to wrap up. I'll invite the worship team, last scripture. But he says this of suffering. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles, they're small and they're not gonna last very long. Remember the troubles that he was talking about just a moment ago. I got no home, I got no food, I've been beaten, I've been rejected. These are small in light of where we're going. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever so we don't look at the troubles we can see now rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen for the things we see now will soon be gone but the things we cannot see will last forever he doesn't ignore the pain he acknowledges hey the pain is real i know this season is difficult i know it's challenging but he says eternity is just around the corner It's coming, I know it feels like a long way off, but this life is but a breath. And so I will not fix my gaze on my present suffering. I will set my gaze heavenward. I will fix my eyes on Jesus, because in just a little time, I'll be standing next to the one who makes it possible for all pain to cease, all suffering to cease, all sickness to be healed, all brokenness to be repaired. Every ounce of brokenness in our life resolved in a moment in the presence of Jesus. So I will fix my eyes on him. I will not run to coping mechanisms, I will run to the presence of Jesus. I will not abandon him in this season, I will run to the shadow of his wings. When my flesh feels like it's gonna fail and my body is about to collapse, I will find myself in the everlasting arms of my Father. And when I'm ready to throw in the white flag and feel like I'm about to quit in the faith, I will remember the title of this sermon what is currently mine was already first his. He has already suffered more than I will ever suffer on this planet. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest of grief. He was bruised and pierced and crushed, and the chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. But he endured the cross and he scorned its shame for the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? You're the joy, you're the joy, you're the joy, you're the joy. You sitting in a room in the presence of God with a life restored is the joy that was set before Jesus. And he said this suffering is worth it if it means I can get to them. So I will endure whatever suffering I must endure on this side of eternity and I will do it well because I wanna be found faithful when I stand before him. I wanna hear those words, well done, good, and faithful servant. So one last time I pose the question, have you buried anything that needs to be stewarded? Yes, even the suffering. Are you stewarding that season well? Because we get one shot at this thing called life. and We need to make it count for eternity. Amen? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for every gift. Thank you for your love. Thank you for salvation. And thank you for all of the other things that you have placed in our hands to be stewarded for you. And Lord, I pray right now for every one of us. I pray that as we do inventory, we see areas where we're clinging white knuckled to things that you've entrusted to us that by your love and by your grace you begin to pry open that hand and we'd recognize what's mine is yours it all belongs to you god i pray for buried gifts right now in the room may they be unearthed in this season i pray for buried opportunities I think it says in the book of Joel that the years that the enemy has stolen, that God can restore. If there's been opportunities we've missed, years that have been stolen because we've neglected to steward, God, I pray a tenfold restoration right now. May those opportunities present themselves again so that we can be faithful to steward them for you. God, for those in the room today that are navigating through a chapter of suffering, I pray for strength. Every parent, every friend, every spouse God's strength to stand in the storm. And before we conclude, I, I do want to take a moment and pray for one more group of people. And maybe that would be someone here today who would say, Tim, the thing that I'm clinging to is my life. It's my heart. I've never surrendered fully to Jesus. Or maybe years ago you walked with God, but you've been away and you know that it's time to come back to him the best thing you can steward starting with is your life, is to hand it over to Jesus and say it belongs to you. And if that's you this morning, and you know that you need to commit to following Christ afresh today, I wanna to pray a prayer of commitment with you. Uh, and as we do that, if you could right now, real boldly, no one's looking around, but just if you need to come back to Jesus today, would you just slip up your hand and look at me and say, Tim, that's me, I need to pray with you today before we get out of this place. Thank you, got you in the back right there. Yeah, I got you, ma'am, right here, awesome. Yeah, got you, bro. Thank you. Hallelujah. Cool. All right, could you all just repeat after me with these that are making this decision? Everyone say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. Help me to follow you. Forgive me of my sin. And may I be your disciple from this day forward until I see you in eternity and you say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's clap and shout for every single one of those people making that decision this morning. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.